0: everyone I guess uh, spring forward maybe mess some people up um, but welcome to Providence Community Church if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet my name is Jenna Vaccaro I am the director of hospitality we are so grateful that you guys are here this morning I expect everyone to be here at the 10:45 service Um, But Providence is a community of people formed around a single and compelling vision to make the gospel of Jesus unignorable in our city. So one of the ways in which we do that is we teach from the Bible every week because we believe it was given to us in order that we may know, worship, and obey Jesus. So for the last several weeks, um, we have been in a series called Kingdom and King where we have been walking through Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount So um, today we're going to continue in that. We're going to be reading out of Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Um, If you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn there with me. If you don't have one, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. Um, If you don't own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that with you as a gift from us today. So if you are able, please go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Y'all bear with me. We're going to go to 34. So, all right. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. You guys are champions for making it on the spring forward. It's been spring break. That's true. You guys are doing great at the 9 a.m. Um. So yeah, I want to say thank you to Jenna. I, uh, we, we read a little bit more uh, than we were planning to. And the reason is because a couple months ago, if you guys remember, um, if, you, if you were with us in December, we actually preached through uh, Matthew chapter 6, this particular portion on uh, laying up your treasures in heaven. And so our original intent was, hey, let's, let's take this text, uh, let's refer everybody to the podcast, let's move on to the next stanza. Uh, and as I was preparing for this week's sermon, I just thought, uh, looking through the commentaries, reading through it, there's no way really to read the next stanza about anxiety, not in relation to what Jesus says here. And, and we'll get into that in a minute on, on why, but uh, that's why it was a little bit longer. And so this morning, uh, first of all, I want to say welcome. Um, my name's Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If you are a guest and you made it here really, really early, so glad that you did, um, and then hopefully you can uh, fill out a connect card, let us know who you are. But what I want to do is just kind of start. we got a lot of work to do this morning. I just want to pray for us. Ask that the Lord would graciously speak through his word, which he's promised to do. So if you'll bow your heads, let me pray. Father, we trust you. We're grateful for your word. We ask for your help now as we look at your word because we acknowledge, Lord, that there's a tendency in our hearts to justify. There's a tendency in our hearts to, to not see your word rightly, but to see it in a light that helps blunt the edge of the sword in a way. And in the end, what happens, God, is we actually are robbed of healing, comfort, encouragement and life. And so we ask for your help, Holy Spirit. Would you help us to see your word for what you have said so that there might be life? If there need to be repentance, we ask that you would help us to humble ourselves unto your mighty hand. If there need to be comfort and encouragement, Lord, would you give it through your word? If there need to be admonishment, we ask that you would give it. But ultimately, Lord, we pray that we would be moving closer and closer to you this morning and that you would help us by your grace, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So let's kick off here with what Jesus says. If you guys remember where we're at, obviously we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for, uh, like Jenna said, several weeks now. And we've been kind of walking through Jesus' words as he lays out for us what it looks like to be citizens of the kingdom of God. This big, grandiose vision that God has uh, for his people from Genesis all the way to Revelation is that he's building a people for himself that he would display his glory to and display his glory through and so we've walked through a number of things over the course of the last few weeks. We've talked about how God intends for us to address our sin with uh, things like lust or anger, uh, how we should love our enemies and not retaliate. We talked about uh, generosity, giving to the needy uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, last week, we talked about prayer and fasting and how those things interplay together. Uh, we kicked off with the Beatitudes, right, which are all these kind of identities, blessed are those who are, blessed are those who are, blessed are those who are, as Jesus kind of lists out what it looks like. And what we've caught is the theme here is about Jesus' righteousness in juxtaposition against our unrighteousness. That Jesus says, here's what righteousness really looks like, and he doesn't give us a picture of the Pharisees and the scribes, but he gives us a picture of what the Bible originally intended for us to be. And then what it does is the, the Bible has a way of being a mirror to us and showing us where we need a Savior. And that was, this has been Jesus' purposes. And I don't think that there's going to be any difference this morning. He does the same thing. However, he's going to make a turn, and he's going to talk about something that's very sensitive. And it's sensitive to all of us, uh, because it's a, it's a very natural part of life. He's going to talk about money. <laughs> and, and he talks about money, and then immediately after that, he's going to talk about something that I think might be even more potent in today's age than maybe it has ever been. He talks about anxiety. And so he links these two together, and this is why I decided to not skip over the discussion about money, because I believe that money and anxiety are inextricably linked, and we'll talk a little bit about why that is. So let's just hop right in, starting In verse 19, so Matthew chapter number 6, verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, or where thieves do not break in and steal. Let's just follow his line of logic. And, and we again, I want to kind of recap this. If you want really more fully, you can go back into December. But this is a very basic line of logic for Jesus. He says this, we shouldn't store up our treasures on earth. Why? Because ultimately, everything that we're storing up on earth is on its way to the trash heap right? You learned this uh, in, 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 I think, junior high science. There's this idea called entropy, that everything is actually devolving, like that, that things are actually going, uh, like the earth itself, the whole solar system is slowing down in its rotation, right? Entropy is this idea that everything's kind of deconstructing. Uh, and, and so it's the same way, like you, get, you buy a brand new shirt, Uh, let's say you go to somewhere really, really nice. My wife and I just got back from our trip for 10-year anniversary, and so our hotel was like one avenue down from uh, Fifth Avenue, right? So you got all these beautiful shops, right? You go in there, and it's like, oh, this is a really nice shirt. How much does it cost? Oh, a mortgage payment, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, And and that thing will be beautiful. Here's what Jesus is saying here, is that that's awesome. Ultimately, that shirt, as beautiful and as well-made as it is, is on its way to being on the back of someone who bought it from Goodwill years later. Because you dropped it off there, right? And Jesus says, why is it that we are about the business of accumulating these treasures that we know ultimately don't hold value? Now, here's the thing. Uh, I know some of you, and it's, it's not a guy thing or a girl thing. I think that every marriage at least usually has one. It's every time you make a major purchase, your question is, how much value is it going to hold, right? Anybody? It's like, I don't buy new cars. As soon as you, walk off the, as soon as you drive it off the lot, drops in value, Right? Or you're like, I'm not going to buy that house because it's in a bad part of town, and that thing, or it's, it's, it's on a trajectory, and therefore the value is going to drop. You kind of think through that. And Jesus is saying that there's nothing wrong with that line of thinking, but why is it then that we are about the business of accumulating earthly things? Because the value is going down. So it's a pretty reasonable line of logic, right? Okay. He goes on to say that we should lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because moths aren't going to destroy, it's not going to rust. Oh, and he uses one other analogy, which is when we lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, we have, a, we have this potential possibility of someone just taking it from you and stealing. Have you ever been thieved? Like someone steals something from you? feel kind of violated, right? It's a terrible feeling. That um, that happens in a sinful world. Jesus says if when we lay up for ourselves treasures eternally, that there is no rust, there is no destruction from moths, there's no, there's no idea that value is going down, but actually the value is going up, and no one can steal it from you. So that's a reasonable line of logic with money, right? Why are we about the business of accumulating junk that's going to be in the trash heap rather than accumulating riches that will never grow old? Let's follow. Then he goes on. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's Jesus' main reason. So he starts with a practical reason and he reasons with our own logic. Then he goes to a worshipful reason. He goes to a theological reason, and he says it like this. The most important reason that we ought to be about the business of storing up treasures in heaven is that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or another way of putting that might be we have a tendency to give our hearts over to the things that we treasure the most. That's irrefutable. We give our hearts over to the things that we treasure the most. This is true on your wedding day. And it's true for the rest of your life, right? We have, a, we have this way. We were, Ecclesiastes 3 says it like this. God put eternity in man's heart. Therefore, we're worshipers. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian this morning. You are a worshiper. You give your heart over to something. And Jesus is saying that what we treasure most is what we give our heart over to. And so he says where we spend our money or where our money goes will in the end point to what we worship. It's a heart issue. John Piper says this, and I think the quote will be behind me, and I can't read my own handwriting, so maybe I'll read it off of here. He says, if Jesus means, now this I think is an important question, what does he mean by store up your treasures in heaven? How do you do that? Here's what John Piper says. If Jesus means, quote, devote your life to accumulating treasures in heaven, close quote, what is the main thing we should do right now? My judgment from the context would be that it is giving rather than accumulating. Okay. John Piper says, when Jesus says that we should be about the business of storing up treasures in heaven, he means that rather than accumulating things for us, we should be giving things away that we've received graciously from God. That's how we store up treasures in heaven. This idea of giving, this outward flow of everything that God has been pouring into our lives, that it should be going outwardly. And Jesus ultimately says that when we are about that, that it will reflect that our hearts are worshiping God and not money. Now, how do I know that? Well, let's continue on. <clears throat> Where your treasure is, your heart will be also, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes when Jesus begins to preach, it feels like he chases a rabbit, right? It's like, well, what does he mean here? Why is he going under this analogy that makes not a lot of sense? What he's saying is that when your eyes are bad, everything's dark. So you really can't use your hands effectively when you're blind. You really can't use your feet effectively when you're blind. So everything could be really healthy. You could be the fittest of your whole life, but ultimately, when you're blind, it eliminates all possibility that you could be as effective as you could be if you weren't. And Jesus uses this analogy in relation to the heart. And so he says, many of us might say, well, it's not that big of a deal If my treasure is where my heart is, if I have this issue with money, because I can kind of juggle the two. Jesus says, no, if your heart is not fully engaged with worship to me and me alone, then everything's darkness. Or as the proverb says, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the wellspring of life. Everything comes from the heart. And so Jesus is saying here that when we think of money, when we consider money, we have to consider worship. He finishes the stanza with this thought, no one can serve two masters, for either he's going to hate the one and love the other, or he's going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So money in the end is about worship, and it's impossible for us to ride the fence here. Now here's the difficulty, and Jesus doesn't get into this, but the whole council of Scripture does, is that what we also know about money is that it's necessary to live, right, Solomon actually even says that uh, money is the answer to all things at one point. So he says, listen, if you, have, if you have problems, if you have a lot of money, you'll answer most of those problems, if not all of them, right? And so, so many of you have experienced this, haven't you? Right? It's like you might have problems in your everyday life, and you're like, man, we're arguing about it, our marriage is tense, but your, your friend down the road who has money, they don't ever argue about that, you know? It might be things like, man, you know, why don't you ever, you know, wash the dishes or, or clean the laundry? Why aren't you doing this? And the other, they just hire a maid, so it's, no big, it's never an argument, because they come in like, "Oh, look at this clean house." But you guys, you argue all the time about it because it's not a problem for them, because they actually have the money to answer the problem. And so it starts to get frustrating when you feel like, "Oh, court, every time you talk about money, like it's no big deal, it's a very real part of life. And I want to say it is. But money represents much more than that, and that's why Jesus is getting to the bottom of it here. Now, let's take one step down into the next stanza. These are not two unrelated thoughts. When we talk about giving, when we talk about money and worship, it's related to the next stanza, which is about anxiety. Let's read verse number 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Pause. Um, when I first took, I think, I don't remember if it was my first Bible class or they, one, of my, one of my Bible teachers said, anytime you see therefore, you need to ask yourself the question, what is it there for? Every time you see therefore, ask the question, what is it there for? Because every time you see therefore, it's, it's actually saying, I said what I said before so that you would believe this. I said what I said before because it's related to what I'm about to say now. Because this is true, right, which is the indicative that's the, the big word for it, right? This is true, therefore the imperative or the command is this. If Jesus is who he says he is, then we ought to act this way. Here he's saying, if money is really about worship, therefore it should, re, it should be related to our anxiety. Now, this is where we're going to camp out and talk a whole lot this morning. What does money represent? Well, I wrote down two things It could represent much more than this, but I think these are probably the major two. Money represents two things, power and control. When we think about the desire for money, we have to think of them in those two contexts. We want more power and we want more control. We want to be able to do what we want, and we want to be able to make others do what we want them to do, right? Or things to do what we want them to do. So when we have more money, we can buy stuff, and stuff can be manipulated to do what we want it to do. That's why Alexa's so cool. You just tell Alexa to do what you want her to do, and she does. When that turns around and robots start telling us what to do, we're all doomed, okay? But that's why it's helpful, your car, ultimately, when you control it, does what you want it to do. That's why you can travel at speeds that, you know, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, it's incredible, right, what we can do. You get on a plane, that plane takes you across the world. Um, and, and so when you have finances, you have more control. When you have money, you have more power. You get to do what you want to do. Nobody gets to make your schedule whenever you're able to have the money, right? You get to do what you want. And I think we all desire that. Now, there's, I want to say this before I move on because I think it's a good caveat. Power and control aren't necessarily bad things. In fact, I think it's important that we note that power and control are necessary and important things to a society. Let me give you some, an example. A judge has power when he sits in a courtroom. He's got that authority, that power. And we want a judge who is just because he'll use that power and he'll use that authority to keep criminals off the street, Right? Like, for instance, if someone came into your house, and let's use the thievery analogy again, someone stole your belongings, what your hope is is that you can appeal to someone with a higher level of power and authority that then can make right what went wrong, right? Anybody? That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. We shouldn't say that jerk judge with the power, right? We only say that whenever that power is used for evil, but it can be used for good. And we're glad, Police officers have a level of power and authority, and there's a reason, you could say whatever you want, there's a reason that when things go bad, you know who you call, and it's not Ghostbusters, you call the police, because you want them to come and help, and they can use their power and authority to help in that situation, right? Okay, so there's such a thing as good power. There's all such a thing as good control, Now I know you're probably thinking, whoa, back off there, because we're Americans, low level of control. We don't, we don't want a king, all right, that's why, you know, we... We push the English away, all right? That's why we pour tea in harbors and stuff. We're not interested in having anyone control us. But listen to me for a second. You are okay with control if it's for your good. I just got on a plane, uh, flew from New York to Houston yesterday. Do you know who was in control? Not me. The pilot had the, had the wheel. And thank God he did, whenever he got on the thing, you boom, we're gonna be going through some turbulence here, so put your seatbelt on. And I'm glad that he's in control, because if we, if we switch seats, we're all going down i don't know what i'm doing and i don't have the control and therefore i'm glad that someone who's in the know is in control so those are two ways in which we can see power and control aren't bad things when do they become bad things well historically speaking the more power and control that you give to someone the more corrupt and self-serving they become so there's the downside this is why we have checks and balances in our society right Like, this is why we don't give one person, one politician more authority or power or control they might need or might be necessary, and we always check them with what they can actually do. We don't give people absolute authority. What's the quote? Absolute uh, power corrupts absolutely, right? Absolute authority corrupts absolutely, And so we're not into that. And I don't have time to talk about it, but just think through history, right? Names like Hitler come to mind, Stalin come to mind, Chavez come to mind. These men who had ultimate power, ultimate control, and in the end it turned them and millions of people were not only harmed, but many of them murdered brutally, right? Because it corrupted from the inside out. We know that this, as Christians, is because of sin. But there's a bend that way. Now I want to say, not everyone's desire for power or for control, and I would say most people, it doesn't start with this idea that, you know, like scheming up Pinky and the Brain style in a lab, I'm going to get power and control, then I'm going to just, you know, mess everybody over. You know, I'm just going to hurt people. It's not what happens. But that little seedling of desire for power and control beyond your scope of authority or given power and control, it blossoms fully into something completely different than what you intended. Jesus knows this. It's why he gets down to the root of worship first, Because he says that which you worship ultimately will produce fruit in your life. When we worship money, what's produced is a worship of power and control, usually a worship of self. I want to be in control. I want to have all the power. And therefore, I'm going to accumulate as much possessions as I can. Jesus said instead we should be givers so that we can slay that idol every day. And this, just, just so you know, this is not like an optional idea for Christians. It's like, oh, yeah, if, if, I'm, if I'm a Christian, you know, maybe I'll be a giver. It's like, no, Jesus says, if you're not a giver, then you probably need to check your worship. You don't really worship him if you're not. Generous. Okay, now, let's move on, though. Then he says, therefore, don't be anxious about your life. Now, we need to spend a little time on anxiety, because I think anxiety is something that's so prevalent in today's society. Now, there are, a, there are a million reasons why that might be true. It's not only particularly money, but I do believe that it's at the root of this idea of power and control. So let's talk a little of anxiety. I got a couple of quotes. They're not going to be on the, on the screen because I was too late getting them. So just listen up and hear these quotes. Every emotion, although horizontally provoked, nevertheless reflects the vertical dimension. Our relationship with God. Think about that for a second. Every emotion that we have, let's say anxiety. Anxiety may be horizontally provoked, but what it reflects is what's happening vertically in your relationship with God. So you may say, yes, I'm an anxious person, but it's because I have a newborn. That's why. You have a newborn. You figure it out. It's very difficult, right? It, I'm anxious all the time because the baby monitor, and I, you know, I got him hooked up to all sorts of things. When the, when the heartbeat starts to palpitate, I'm there, you know? And that's why I'm anxious. Or you might say, you know why I'm anxious, Court? Because I'm in a job that's not secure. If I were in a job that were secure, then and only then, I wouldn't be anxious. But because I'm not, my circumstances dictate. You know why I'm anxious, Court? It's because of my family of origin story. My parents were divorced, and their parents were divorced, and their parents were divorced, and it was all because of adultery, and therefore, I'm always afraid and anxious that my spouse is going to do it to me. That's why I live this way. It's why I am the way I am. And and this is most of the time why we justify our anxieties. We say it's it's horizontal, it's the people around me, the circumstances around me, it's what's happening to me. This author, author of a book called The Cry of the Soul says, actually, it may be provoked horizontally, but it always actually reflects what's happening between you and your relationship with God. Why? Well, because ultimately anxiety is birthed out of a desire for you to be in control and in power and you not being there, and therefore it... it it starts to make you a lot of unrest, restless in the soul. Here's an example. You have two primary emotions here, right? We have shame and we have anxiety. Shame looks backward. Many of us, maybe we've experienced shame. Shame looks backward and says, oh, this thing happened to me and I wasn't, I didn't do right, or I wasn't enough in that moment. I should have done differently. I wasn't a good person. I'm ashamed of that action. That's looking backward, Anxiety is the exact opposite. It looks forward and it has fear based on the unknown future. Anxiety asks the question, am I going to know enough? Will I have enough knowledge to face the difficulties of tomorrow? Am I going to do enough? Am I going to have the the courage, the strength, the abilities to face the difficulties of tomorrow? Or here's maybe more of a root identity question, will I even be enough of a person? to be able to face tomorrow. These are the anxieties that make us restless. Now that may be really theoretical, let me brass tax it. Am I gonna have enough money in the account to to pay our mortgage next month? Anxiety. Is there gonna be a day where my spouse looks at me and says I fell out of love with you because you're not who I married? Anxiety. Is there gonna be a day where my child is wayward because I didn't do enough as a parent? Anxiety. Is there gonna be a day that I'm in a hospital room with an unknown relative, maybe someone close to me that's dying and I have no control? Anxiety. Is there going to be a time where there's a sickness that comes in and I did not do enough research in order to know what that sickness was and therefore my child is going to be on, a, on their deathbed or they're going to be in the hospital and they're going to be sick and I'm going to be sitting there feeling like a failure because I didn't do enough on the front end to prevent that anxiety. You see what I'm saying here? Anxiety is future oriented. What might happen that we don't know and we're afraid in the future Will I have enough money to put food on the table? Will I even have enough food? Will I have have clothes for my kids? Will we have shelter? We're going to have a nice house. Are we going to have the house that we need to have in order to house our children? Are they all going to have to bunk up in one room? Are they going to be able to have their own room? Are they going to have a pool? Are they going to be okay? Are they going to be able to play sports? Are they going to be in extracurricular activities? On and on we go, right? And some of those may sound ridiculous. Some of you guys are like, my gosh. And some of you are like, yes, important. National Honor Society. You know, is it going to happen? Am I going to do enough? Are they going to have tutors. Right? Are they going to know three languages, four languages, five languages, zero languages? Can they even speak now? Right? My kid's going to make it to college. Are we going to have enough money in order to pay for the college? Are we going to have to put them into debt? And then am I going to be able to retire comfortably? Am I putting enough money away right now? Am I going to be sick? And then my wife's going to have to work whenever we're sick. These are all the things that go in our minds, right? I'm not making this stuff up. Like, I'm a pastor, so I've heard these. It's not like I just came up with these. These are things that I sit across from people and talk to them about. And they're things that happen in my own heart. Let me tell you something about pastoral leadership. There's not like a, a retirement plan. You know, I didn't walk in and was like, hey, there's a matching fund at Providence. We planted the church. There's no matching fund. No 401k plan. So these are things that start to rattle around in your brain. And these anxieties, they begin to rule. Now, here's the thing. I don't even have time for it. But you know what social media does? Then if there's this comparison game. And you are like, not om- it confirms your greatest fears. Because you might see someone else's highlight reel. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, look what they're doing for their retirement. Oh, and then there's me. Look at their kids. They're all healthy and tan. Look at my kids, like this pale, squalid child here. You know, like, what am I going to do? These are real, these anxieties, they just get get compounded on and compounded on. And then we live in this anxiety. We just reside there. There's not just mental health issues that are, uh, I think, complicated through this, but there's, like, genuine, uh, like, heart issues come from this, and I don't mean heart spiritually, I mean like no, legitimately people can have uh, panic attacks, heart attacks uh, over anxiety and so Jesus here is not coming at something that you and I can't resonate with when he says therefore don't be anxious, he's speaking right to us because if we're honest, and I will be honest before you, when I look at my, my prayer journal and I see the primary emotion that I'm confessing to God, it's anxiety whether I've named it or not, it's anxiety about what's to come Jesus knows this about me And he attaches it to money, yes, I believe because of what money represents, and I believe it's a big deal. But also because I believe money points to power and control, which is what we really deeply desire, and God does not really desire for us, at least not in the way that you and I want it. Because here's what we know God has given us an element of power, He has given us an element of control. He just hasn't given us as much as we would like. We want a little more, which is the original sin. Satan comes and tells Eve, God doesn't want you to be like him, so just eat of the fruit. And she says, you're right. I need a little more than I've already been given, despite the fact that what they'd been given was the whole earth to subdue and have dominion over. They had to have a little more. And that is our bend. Okay. So what does Jesus do here? He's gonna give us reasons why we shouldn't be anxious, and he's just gonna kind of list through. Here's why. Now, here's the thing. If you'll hear me out on this, you're probably thinking, you know what I don't want to hear? A bunch of reasons why I shouldn't be anxious, because I already know. Right? Can we be honest with each other? It's like, that's unhelpful, Jesus, okay? Just tell me all of the reasons I shouldn't be anxious. But here's what I want you to know, is that the word of God has power to change us. If it were just me coming up here and giving you my reasons why you shouldn't be anxious, I would agree with you. I'm not being helpful. But if we go to the truth of the word, what we know is that Jesus is not only giving us theoretical truth, he's giving us his very word. And if we know and believe what John chapter 1 verse 1 says, when when the Bible says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When we bring the word, we bring Jesus' very presence. We're offering Christ to one another when we talk about anxiety in these terms. So let's listen into what Jesus has to say. His first reason, verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Pause. His first reason is, life's about more than what you're really concerned about. And deep down we know that, but deep down we struggle to apply it. It's the reason that when Jesus says store up your treasures in heaven, we all check out. Because we're all like, I get it, yeah, 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 we're all headed to heaven. But you know what, i got to pay the bills. He says here, your life's about more than what you're really concerned about. And that if we really had eternal eyes, we would see eternally all that's coming for us is much greater than what we're currently experiencing. It's why Paul could say in the midst of his suffering and trials... That the weight of glory, the eternal weight of glory that's headed for him far surpasses this light momentary affliction that he was experiencing. When I say light momentary affliction, you might think, oh, you know, it must be just a slight inconvenience. Paul was imprisoned, beaten, stripped naked, and shamed. That's That's more than a light momentary affliction. But that's what he called it in comparison with the eternal weight of glory. Jesus says here, isn't your life about more than that? And you might think that he's just being like a mean, you know, football coach here or something, you know, like, hey, wimp, you know, pick up your, you know, pick up your head and run faster. No, Jesus is lovingly asking you, aren't you about more than clothes? He's trying to remind you of your value. And he's going to do this regularly. But he's going to say, isn't your life more than about what you wear? Aren't you my image bearer? He's trying to lift our head up, not beat us down. Your life's more than that. You are more precious to me than that. Your purposes are greater than that. Don't be anxious about your life because your life's about more than possessions and material fears. Okay, that's reason number one. Then he goes on. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Here's another question. This is rhetorical, by the way. Are you not of more value than they? Pause. Pause. Jesus says, God cares for things far less valuable than you are in great detail. Do you not think that he would do the same for you? Paul takes this line of logic a step further in the book of Romans by saying, if God did not spare his own son but willingly gave him up for us all, how would he not also graciously give us all things? So Paul says, if we know that this is what God the Father was willing to do, give us Christ Why are we afraid and anxious that he wouldn't take care of us in these ways? And somewhere deep down, what we have to wrestle with is most likely there's unbelief. Most likely, somewhere deep down, we believe that God would care for the sparrow more than he would care for you and me, which is silly, right? But we believe that. And so Jesus, looking in our eyes, says, are you not of more value than the birds? Okay, he goes on. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Okay, this is just starting to get mean, right? Because That's another rhetorical that is just, we all know, but it's very practical. So he says, you cannot fix anything about your future with anxiety. Check this out. But you can harm things about your future through anxiety. So like when I first wrote that line, you know what I put? you can't change anything about your future with anxiety. And then I crossed that out because here's the truth. You can change things about your future with anxiety only for the negative, <laughs> not for the positive. You can change things about your future for the negative. What do, you, what do you mean, Court? What do you mean? Okay, let me read this quote from Spurgeon I've always found it hugely helpful in relation to anxiety. He says this, Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It only empties today of its strength. I'll read that again. Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. So when we succumb to anxiety, listen, you know what doesn't change? What's coming for us tomorrow? Because check it out, you and I aren't in power and aren't in control of that. But do you know what it does do? It robs you today of the strength to face your difficulties. And so you start to find there's a cyclical nature to anxiety that keeps pushing you further and further and further down into the doldrums. And so you know what it does change? Your future to the negative and never the positive. And so anxiety has a way of continuing to press down and press down and press down until you feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. You ever said that to someone? I just feel like this weight on me. Because it continues to press. You know why? Because you're taking the things for tomorrow that are in God's hands he's promised to carry and you're saying, I want to carry those every day. I want to carry those. I want to carry those. I want to carry that weight. Later Jesus is going to say, leave tomorrow's worries for tomorrow because today has sufficient trouble. (laughs) Today has sufficient role for itself. Just to approach the present. Okay. Let's continue. Then he says this. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they're neither toiling nor spinning. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? So Jesus says the same thing that he said earlier, uh, and then he just adds a little tag to it. He says, that it's a faith issue. See, many of us think that it's a knowledge, if I just knew more of the Bible, then I wouldn't be anxious. Well, some of us think, man, if I was just a better Christian. If no, it's really just an issue of trust. And, and I know how that can even sound difficult because you're like, man, I really do believe. I do believe. I'm not saying that you can't struggle. We struggle. I think what Jesus is saying here is that if we think that the struggle is only horizontal and if that we just changed our circumstances, we wouldn't feel this way, he's saying that's a lie and it's never going to give you freedom. It will be a battle on this side of things, no matter what it is that you, when you get yourself in the perfect situation, you're gonna find that you're gonna look at other situations and say, there's the perfect situation. Every bubble ends up bursting. And Jesus says, rather than feeling like if I just changed and shifted the pieces to the chessboard to be exactly to my liking, why don't you instead go to the heart and say, where am I not trusting God, my Father? That's what Jesus is after here. Okay, Continue. Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first, this is key, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Okay. So how do we wrap this up? Here's what I want to say. If you find yourself in these areas of anxiety, and and as I'm talking, maybe even there's a tendency to become even more anxious as I'm talking, and here's why, because then you're thinking, oh no, so you're saying something's wrong with me internally with my relationship with Jesus, how am I going to fix that too, right? It's like, not only am I scared about my kids, not only am I scared about our finances, not only am I scared, all these different fears, but now I'm afraid that maybe I messed up with God, okay, this text is about Jesus making an invitation to us once again, into peace by saying, I want you to cut ties with all of these anxieties, not by conjuring up the strength to pull the knife out and cut the cords, but simply by seeking first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness. Thomas Chalmers is an old pastor who wrote, a, he wrote a, an essay that was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he basically said this that a lot of times what we try to do is cut all of the bad fruit off of the tree in our lives and then we're only discouraged whenever where one bad fruit was three spring up in its place right you guys remember the old mythologies where you like you cut the head off the snake three come back you're like oh this is miserable sometimes that's how our sanctification feels he says rather than us trying to only mortify the sin what we need to do and what Jesus encouragement is here is supplant the old affection that we have for those sins with an affection for Jesus. So you're uprooting. You're uprooting all of the fear. You're uprooting all of your anxieties by saying, I want to stir into flame my affection for Christ, his kingdom, his righteousness. And I want to accept his invitation into peace. I know that's really ethereal and you're probably like, man, that... That sounds good, Court, but that's just not my reality. And so I want to give you a few practicals that I think might help you in relation. One is I think that Jesus' words about money are well placed. I would encourage you that if you struggle here, potentially consider generosity and being a covenant giver as a way to cut your anxieties and to not only cut the cord but to pursue the kingdom that oftentimes whenever we're not a covenant giver, we don't see the connection between that and our power and control issues and our worship issues, but they are inextricably linked. And there's a way of generosity that ends up fanning into flame our pursuit of the kingdom of God. And so I wanna encourage you with that. Number two, I wanna encourage you to meditate on God's truth rather than the world's truth. Because here's what I can promise you, is that when you read those things from Jesus, many of us, we know them, and yet they haven't made the six-inch drop from our mind into our heart. And the reason is because we ruminate on social media oftentimes more than we ruminate on God's word. And so here's the thing, man. I think we live in an anxious world because if you just look at our headline news, it's like anxiety ridden. It's Like I kid you not. If, if you just open up the news articles, you think we're all going to war. It's all over. It's, it's the end, you know? And every week it's like that. There's a new issue that's coming and it's coming for all of us. You feel like there's a guillotine in your front yard if you just turn on the headline news. And I think that there's nothing wrong necessarily with being informed. I'm just asking, how informed are we about who God is and what he is saying to us? Meditating on the truths here about anxiety can bring life. Number three, um, examine your heart. So as much as I've said many of us are anxious, I think some of us go, I'm just not an anxious person, I'm really peaceful. And I would say just examine that a little bit. Uh, And here's the way you do that. Check out some of the bad fruit you see in your life, like maybe... I'll just use mine as an example. Sometimes I'm very easygoing, so most of you, you know, you either talk to me at least once or maybe many times, and I, I, kinda, I laugh, I'm really easy to be around, but there's like these moments where I can be snippy, and it comes out of nowhere. I don't know why it happens, it happens. I've talked to the elders about it many times. It's like there's this low level residual beneath the surface anger that then will spike. And then I'm like, where the heck did that come from? And my wife will be like, what's wrong with you? And what I've realized in my life is I'm a way more anxious person than I'm willing to acknowledge that really I'm just living in this low-level or maybe high-level anxiety, but I'm just keeping it beneath the surface, but it ultimately will rear its head. And so I wasn't willing to say that I was anxious, because what my personality is, I'm all good, it's all good, it's no big deal. It is a big deal, and it's there. And so I would encourage you to examine your heart. Some of you are like, I don't have to examine, I know. Okay, that's good. But ma- many of us, it's very hidden to us, and it manifests itself differently. So That maybe might be a practical. And then lastly, Seeking first the kingdom of God. Seeking first the kingdom of God. And here's my practical encouragement to do this. It is embracing the fatherhood of God in your life. That you have a father who loves you. Jesus is a king, but the king is your dad. Does does this make sense? So experiencing what it means that the God of the universe, who holds all power, all authority and control, is your father now through adoption in the gospel. And that when you come to him in prayer, that you're not coming to a far-off, distant figure who has the authority but is unwilling. But you're coming to a God who loves you and is conforming you to the image of his son. And so if you feel like his hand is withholding something from you, it's for a purpose. I'll close with this quote. It says this, God's passion for your life is to rig the world so that you are compelled to deal with whatever blocks you from being like his glorious son i'll read that again god's passion is to rig the world so that you are compelled to deal with whatever blocks you from becoming like his glorious son so sometimes the very thing that you feel like is making you so anxious is god actually lovingly leading you there so that you would rely on Jesus and not yourself for the life that you're living like oh man that's so harsh no it's it's not that harsh you do the same thing with your kids your son's irrationally afraid of water and you lovingly bring him into the water with you and he's freaking out why would you do this you're an awful dad it's because he's actually being led into joy later on he's going to be at splashdown he's going to love it but right now he's terrified you have a loving father who will lead you to these places Because ultimately, he cares more about you being like Jesus than you and I do. (laughs) And he's faithful to bring us there. Let me pray for us if you'll stand to your feet. Father, thank you that you are a faithful God. Thank you that in all of our anxiety, we can come to you. I pray now that we would hear your call, your invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And Jesus, you'll give them rest. I pray that right now, we would hear your words. Cast your anxieties on me as I care for you, let us hear that call and respond. Father, for anxious moms, anxious dads, anxious husbands, anxious wives, anxious men and women, sons and daughters, would you speak kindly to our hearts, bringing us into worship? If we are enslaved to our finances, God, would you make us givers? If we are enslaved to various spheres, Would you make us bold and courageous? And God, for those who feel as though they've been continually pressed down over and over and over again, would you open the door of that dungeon with your light and shine in all the clearer? Breathe life this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit.